IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be talking about new albums by The Armed and Greta Van Fleet. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? So, Steve, like when when the time comes for the indie cast behind the music or behind the podcast or whatever, and, and that time will come. You know, there's going to be there's going to be this yes. point in the story where it gets into the rivalries and jealousies, like all those things that end up breaking up iconic duos such as ourselves. And you know, it's not. Can I just say to them, I, I, I'm doing cocaine right now as we're recording this episode. So we're in the drug period of our show already. Yeah, it, it's like that scene in Walk Hard. I'm in a dark period. Um, and <laughs> But, yeah, but for, it's, it's not going to be the drugs. It's not going to be the book deals or the you know the musicians with whom you're on a text message basis. That's, that's not going to be it. I'm going to look back on April 12th, 2021 as the day where somebody found it. You know, they, they made their lives work to hack the uh, Twitter and Instagram accounts of uh, prominent music writers. Uh, Steve was one of them. I was yes. not. I was just not yeah. seen as important enough to have my social media hacked on. Now, I, I, I was just, I mean, I'm sorry that happened. I would have freaked out if that happened to me. But the fact that it was like majority music writers is this like a preemptive strike by Vet- Greta Van Fleet's Stan Army <laughs> I don't know I mean I don't think it was intentionally directed at music critics oh. because I know the way I, the reason I got hacked is that I was sent a DM from a prominent music writer I won't say who it is mm. but it was like an Instagram link okay and I, I clicked it and then I got hacked immediately it just seemed like a random fishing expedition yeah. that ended up going through it ended up dming just random people uh in my contacts list some of whom were music writers some who weren't so i i don't think it was an orchestrated attack but uh yeah i just want people to know that if you follow me on twitter uh the hacker didn't actually tweet anything out so all the terrible takes on there are actually mine so <laughs> yeah i can't I, can't I can't blame that on a hacker <laughs> Uh, I'm surprised you haven't been hacked because uh, you've written some contentious uh, reviews. Christ. Now, now, now I'm putting this energy out into the world and, uh, <laughs> uh, this was, this, well, this was a terrible bit. Like this is, you know, I usually, uh, I, this, this, this was a bad bit. <laughs> no, it'll be all right. I, I, I think it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, again, I think anytime, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It's bad when you feel like people are upset at music critics, but then you mm-hmm. also feel like, well, wow, like people still care about what we think. They care enough to uh, get angry and uh, troll or, you know, even hack people. So it, it, it's it's an inspiring thing if you want to look at it from a glass-half-full perspective. <laughs> um, I was curious, I mean, you know, we had some interesting... Uh, developments in the world of blues rock this week oh yeah this is we this is like the so like we can't cover them all but i mean i i there's yeah, so a lot of there's so many news. i don't even know like which right off the bat you're referring to like that's how big it was in the well, blues rock uh in the blues rock uh banter scene yeah and we haven't covered a lot of blues rock on the show uh which <laughs> I, I, I feel bad about but it's oh. good that we have this opportunity i mean i, I feel like we should cover like the legend first Okay. Uh, which is Mick Jagger. Um, and, you know, it's reductive to refer to the Stones as a blues rock band. But, yeah. you know, obviously they come from the blues. Jagger is now a grizzled old veteran of music yeah. in the same way that you think of grizzled old blues people. <laughs> and he put out a song this week with Dave Grohl called Easy Sleazy. Yes. Right? Is that, that's what it's that, called. That definitely happened. Uh, that's the name of the song. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, it's crazy. I mean, this is a far afield from our show because we don't really delve too much into the classic rock realm. But I, I am fascinated by Mick Jagger's solo career because it just seems like he has so many instances where he hooks up with famous people and they get really like high and then they do something goofy. You know, and this goes back to the 80s when he did Dancing in the Street with David Bowie, you know, that bonkers music video. Oh, yeah. That 
it goes up through Super Heavy. Do you remember Super Heavy? I have no the, idea uh, who super that group is. He was in. I have no idea. It was a super. It was a super group he was in with like Josh Stone and Dave Stewart from. Oh yes, yes, yes. Damian Marley. It's like the least essential super group of all time. That's yes, I do remember that now. And then he does this Dave Grohl song. Yeah, <laughs> the, the Super Heavy is terrible. Like they're but they're oh. hilarious. Definitely look them up on on YouTube. Um, but then, uh, then you have this 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 song with Dave Grohl, "Easy Sleazy." How would you describe this? It's sort of like a "We Didn't Start the Fire." It, it's sort of like song. Yeah, it's kind of like a recap of like COVID times, and um, it, it's I don't know. It, it's like Mick Jagger kind of lending a sense of like um, momentum to it. Like, oh wow, Mick Jagger. Like, you have to think about like what it takes to get Mick Jagger to do anything at this point. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's like what, like, think of like what, like, you have to, how, what kind of convincing you have to, like, hey, Mick, like, I know that, like, this is probably for fun, for free, like, you just do this thing. I promise it'll be cool. And of course, you know, when Dave Grohl's doing that, like, I can, I imagine he's quite convincing. And also, like, I'm sure that Dave Grohl did a lot of nice things for Mick Jagger at some point because that's what Dave Grohl does. And um, I don't know. I think people were like trying, like like so many things that have ha- that happened in the past several years, like I think people tried to get mad at this, like saying it was similar to the Gail Gadot uh, Imagine video, or like we didn't start the fire. But in reality, it's just like, look, man, it's Dave Grohl and Mick Jagger doing something. Like it's it's almost like something you would see on the Tonight Show. We're gonna forget about it in a week. And by the way, on that note, I had this thought when this song came out, of thinking about like, hey, man. Remember that Foo Fighters album that came out last year and like true existential crisis? Like, wait a minute, that was like two months ago. Like, oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the, yeah, the time, exactly. The, my sense of time has just collapsed, and I guess maybe that was the point of Easy Sleazy to just kind of make me confront the total contextual collapse of COVID times. I think it just kind of went about I- it in a roundabout way. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you can blame COVID for the Foo Fighters album thing, though, because yeah. I feel like every late period Foo Fighters album feels like it came out two years ago. You know, like when that album came out that day, it felt like, oh, yeah, this album came out a couple years ago, right? I vaguely remember this, yeah. even though it's brand, brand new. I think it's just the nature of late period Foo Fighters records. But yeah, I'm with you on this Mick Jagger, Dave Grohl song, because to me, it is just like this goofy thing that these two you know, very rich musicians did. They got together for a day. Like I said, I think they probably, you know, smoked some weed or something and they were just like screwing around and they craft this song out that we're all going to forget in a week. And I know for me personally, I tend to be forgiving of (laughs) musicians when they're just acting goofy. Yeah. You know, if you're just doing something kind of goofy and silly, and we're going to talk about this later in the episode in relation to Greta Van (laughs) Yeah, I think that's part of like why... I have some affection for that band because I, th- I think they're just sort of like this goofy, preposterous band. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, to me, it's different from the Gal Gadot thing, which I felt like was yeah. They thought they were salt. They, they thought they were like really bringing the world together, like that. And yeah, exactly. There's yeah. a sort of arrogance of like celebrity mm-hmm. that you feel present in that that I don't feel like is here. I feel like even in, like that lyric video that they put out. Yeah. It looks like someone, you know, from the community college shot it. You know, it's like very slapdash. Uh, so it's like, okay, they're just these two guys who I generally like. I mean, I love Mick Jagger and I appreciate Dave Grohl uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, they're just goofing off. So, you know, let them be. Um, the other big blues rock news, however. Yes. Um, seems like there's a little more weight behind it. And that is there's a new Black Keys record coming out. Uh, called Delta Cream. With a K. That makes it edgy. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> That's an incredible title, by the way. <laughs> Cream awesome. is with, spelled with a K, by the way. It's K-R-E-A-M. Um, <laughs> and it's a blues covers album, uh, which hats off to the Black Keys for I doing guess. a blues covers album in, in 2021. Because you know, they, they must suspect that, you know, this is not the coolest thing to do in 2021. There's going to be people uh, already, you know, gearing up to disparage it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing it anyway. They've done this before. They put out a a, a covers EP of Junior Kimbrough songs oh. in the late aughts. That's actually quite good. <laughs> I have to say, like, I'm generally, I, I like the Black Keys. I like their, especially like their aughts era albums. Okay. I think there's some really good records from back then. I wasn't a fan of Let's Rock. 
That was their last studio record, yes. which also has like a pretty funny album title. Yeah, because um, that's in quotes. Less Rock was in quotes. And the quotes were yeah, exactly. part of So you had to do that awkward thing when you were writing about it where you have like like quotes and then the quotes of the out like itself. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I wonder to what degree like Dan Auerbach is invested in the Black Keys at this point yeah. because he's actually established a really good career as a producer. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's one of those people where if he's producing a record, I think he has a pretty high batting average. Yeah, he's like the kind of guy who like I, I remember like there was the, the, he produced some record that was nominated for a Grammy, like something I had never heard of. And I think Dan Auerbach producing your blues adjacent record is pretty much the main line to Grammy nomination. So yeah, it's like, well, and, and I like his Lana Del Rey record. He did oh, ultra violence. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good record. Oh, yeah. And he's done some other things that aren't just in that blues thing. He brings a very naturalistic aesthetic to his records, as you would expect. Yeah. They sound very live in the studio. Uh, I'm sure using a lot of vintage instruments, recording live to tape, all of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And he's really good at that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a little disappointed that there wasn't a, a honking on Bobo reference uh, anywhere in relation to this album. I think if you if you if you make a blues covers album after honking on Bobo, I think you have to do some sort of homage to Bobo. <laughs> you know, it's just the law. Well, that that that's where people like you and I come in because like every single person that I know would make a honking on Bobo reference very much did. And you know what? Like, I got to appreciate the Black Keys, like, doing that. Because, I mean, when was, like, the last time, I mean, you really, like, thought about blues? Like, I haven't made a blues hammer joke in, like, ten some odd years. And that was the joke that you used to make, like, all the time for bands like this one. Um, Blues Hammer, of course, uh, the fake blues band in Ghost World, the movie. I don't know when that movie came out, early 2000s. But... Yeah, because I I remember like in the 90s, like you had to have some awareness of the blues because if you read Guitar World or Guitar Player or Guitar uh, General Magazine, like they would always throw in the Kenny Wayne Shepherd or Johnny Lang profile or like a Stevie Ray Vaughan tab alongside, you know, like Longview (laughs) or like Buddy Holly. So, uh, yeah, and... It's and and then recently there was like a controversy about Kenny Wayne Shepherd having an honor uh, revoked because he uses General Lee imagery in his music, and they're talking about like how wow yeah the blues community is freaking out over this, and I'm thinking like how did I I'm impressed that you I I was not aware of this Kenny Wayne Shepherd. <laughs> Uh, Bruja. The, the, the ties that, that you knew this. The ties that bind from the guitar world, uh, '90s industry. But yeah, I mean, Dwayne, uh, Derek Trucks. He's another guy who was like, I'm like, who is this guy? Like, I want to read about like uh, Bush or Green Day. And lo and behold, he ended up joining like the Almond Brothers. Uh, but yeah, and, and and he's now in uh, Trucks to to the the Trucks. I couldn't say Tedeschi. Yeah, Tedeschi Trucks band, which is like a big band yeah. in the jam band community so they're they're waving the flag i mean you know i think in terms of indie rock the blues at this point only uh enters the picture as almost like a atmospheric uh, yeah. influence like if you're doing something kind of spooky and ancient sounding yeah it has kind of a blues like feel without actually going into like a 12 bar yeah. blues <laughs> Musical structure. I was about I mean, to I say, like man, like, I, I, is is twelve bar blues the next indie trend? Like, is that well? <laughs> I wouldn't mind if people, you know, if aspiring indie musicians listen to like some John Lee Hooker stuff, you know, which is like pretty cool, very atmospheric, great groove type stuff. I mean, yeah. if there's one thing, um, I mean, you know, the blues thing, <laughs> it has a negative connotation because of some of the people you just mentioned. This. Very histrionic white boy blues yeah. style that came into fashion in the 80s and 90s. And I think people listen to that and they associate blues with that. But, uh, you know, blues, like good blues, always has like great grooves to it, like mm-hmm. cool lyrics, awesome vocals. There's a lot to dig into there. Hopefully the Black Keys will pay homage to that. Yeah. They just released record. the first single, which is Crawling King Snake. So I think they're like really. Oh, okay. I think they're getting into also one of the good things about the blues is like the pretty, ov- 
it's like not even double entendre. It's like single entendre. And, you know, that. I mean, I remember, uh, I was just I remember interviewing like Patrick Carney like 15 years ago. Wow. <laughs> when Magic Potion came out. <laughs> And we were talking. We, we were talking about blues music, and he said, "Like I hate the blues. Like he wasn't wow into the blues at all." And because he comes from more of like a punk rock yeah background, that great Ohio tradition of <laughs> you know bands like Devo and um, uh, bands of that ilk, and uh, uh, Pear Ubu. That's the other band I'm yes. trying to think of. Um, I think that's where uh, that's where he comes from. I think Auerbach is more of like the blues purist, mm. but I don't know. I think the Black Keys now; those guys, I think. I'm guessing they're in their mid 40s, maybe yeah. late 40s. Uh, now they're at that time of life where maybe they are grizzled enough yeah, to, to do a blues covers album. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. Yes. Uh, or maybe this was it. We'll, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Um, let's move on to our mailbag segment. Yeah. This question comes from Andrew in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Speaking of Billy Joel. Yeah. Allentown, they're right there. There it is. Where they're closing all the factories down. Mm. Um, long time, first time. Here's a trend to hash out. Nice. Like the reference. Nice. To the intro. Andrew's a real head. This is great. <laughs> uh, with Taylor Swift re-recording all of her old albums, which indie cast adjacent artist should follow her approach and take another stab at their older material? Let's consider the circumstances. Maybe you'd like to hear someone whose masters were destroyed in the in the Universal Fire. Uh, re-record their catalog for posterity. Maybe you'd like someone mired in long-running li- label drama to reclaim their art, like Taylor. Or maybe you just want to want one of your favorite bands to use modern technology in an actual budget to make their old songs sound, well, not like shit anymore. <laughs> See, Emo Revival circa, circa 2011. There. Oh, there's a tip of the cap to Ian right there. There it is. Uh, thanks for taking my question, and keep up the great work. Again, that's Andrew from Allentown. Pennsylvania. Andrew, thanks for writing in. That's a that's a great question. I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this. Just to start, I would say that I tend to not be a big fan of artists doing this. Mm-hmm. I I'm the type of person where if I like a record, I'll talk myself into liking the stuff I didn't initially appreciate it about it, <laughs> you know, whether it's the production style or the vocals, you know, I you know, I think this is a common thing. If you love a record, you come to love even the flaws in it it's just you you love everything about it um which is why for instance like when car seat headrest who's a indie cast adjacent artist that's indie cast like center that's not even adjacent (laughs) that's true but like when he re-recorded twin fantasy um i thought that was an interesting experiment but i still like the original album more um What's your take on this? How, how, is there a, is there a record that you like to hear re-recorded? Yeah, for some reason. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say because when you make a record, an artist will tell you this as well. It's like a document of that time, and uh, you know they can't really um, occupy the same headspace um, and or obtain the same emotion. And you know, bringing up the emo revival circa two thousand eleven stuff is interesting because. Um, it's on the right track, but like by that point, like recording technology had improved so much that like that stuff doesn't really sound all that noticeably bad to me, you know, uh, the production would get better, but I think it applies more to like nineties stuff because here, here's the thing that happened a lot, um, in the past couple of decades where you get like a supposed remaster or remix or, you know, some reason to re-release an album and the, they would do absolutely nothing noticeable to the music itself. And that was very evident to me for one of my favorite albums where I like can seriously say the production sounds like shit, which is Mineral, The Power of Failing. Um, debut album came out in, I believe, 97 or something like that. And I mean, we're talking about like and justice for all lack of bass on that record. Like it just sounds like <laughs> chewing tinfoil. Um, and I, I would just... Because, like, more recent Mineral stuff, like the singles they released in 2019, I mean, they sound fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, seeing them live uh, in 2014, 2019, it's funny whenever um, these are, like, uh, some old emo footage uh, pops up on, like, Brooklyn Vegan or the Fireside Bowl. And it's like, oh, cool, I get to see, like, Jimmy Eat World in 95 or Mineral in 96. And, like... They sound like crap. Um, and then you see them like later on. It's like, oh, they can play their instruments much better now. So uh, that and also Sunny Day Real Estate's Diary, like 
maybe the iconic emo album and the production is just shit on that record and which is strange because like brad wood's on it i would like to hear like i don't know like uh some remaster that like because i think the production on those albums like really deletes from the the like it's actually like a flaw rather than like it's like a it's like a bug, not a feature to me. Also, um, just a bunch of bands that like are no longer on Spotify streaming. Like, I think it's probably because of, I don't know, like label stuff. So Areograms, uh, A Story in White, too. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think of a good example of this for me. And the best thing I could come up with, and I don't think this is actually a great example, but I always think of like the early Strokes records, Is This It and Room on Fire in particular. They have this weird vocal effect on Julian Casablancas' voice where it sounds like a little bit distorted, which doesn't really exist on like the later records. And I always feel like that's a little distracting when you listen to those records. So I guess I would like to hear a version of those albums where Julian Casablancas just sang into like a regular microphone without effects. <laughs> this and you could hear his voice come through more clearly. Not a great answer, but that's it's really a, the first thing that came to mind. When that's this was a, asked. that would be f- interesting to listen to, but also it would be like it's it, it, it's like uh got like how could you get how could you get rid of that? That's like the that's like a load-bearing uh production detail like um, I, I, I think of like that Simpsons joke, like back in the day where like Ned Flanders is like, you know, I, it's like, I, I like that new Woodsy Allen movie, except for the nervous guy who's always in it. Like, it's just something <laughs> <laughs> like the, the distorted microphone, like that is the strokes in a way. But I mean, I would, no, I would just, hear- it is, but again, it, it's not a great answer, but like, <laughs> I think it, it goes back to what I originally said at the top where the records that I really love the things about it that maybe I didn't vibe on initially, I tend to talk myself into liking it because Mm. it's just part of the package. It speaks to what you were saying about records being a document of their time. Um, Where if an artist goes back and they re-record something they did 20 years earlier, it does feel like a little bit like when, I I don't know if you watch like any of those Saturday Night Live, like anniversary specials, like where they had old cast members come back and, Oh yeah. You know, yeah. It's like Dan Aykroyd doing Wild and Crazy Guy again, and he's like 70 years old now. (laughs) It just feels like a little embarrassing to see that. Yeah. And uh, so, again, I'm I'm generally not a fan of that Hmm. beyond it just being an interesting experiment to be like, well, what if they did this? You know, that (laughs) might be interesting, but I don't see that ever overtaking the original article. Even like that Mineral album you were talking about. If they re-recorded that, you would probably still prefer the original one just because it's them when they were at that period of time. Yeah. It, it just wouldn't be the same thing if they re-recorded it. What I would be open for is if, like, the Strokes, like, 10, 20 years from now when they're in their, like, Fat Elvis phase, like, kind of did, like, these orchestral, like, Vegas versions of Is This It? <laughs> uh, that, that, that would be oh, interesting man. to me. Or, I mean, that's something I could see the Killers, like, actually doing. Yes. I think, like, the Killers doing the a S&M, album, The Metallica s yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Bring in, you know, the, uh, the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra and have them do, uh, you know, these lush versions of uh, Somebody Told Me and Mr. <laughs> Brightside. Actually, that could... That, that, that sounds, sounds pretty fucking happen. awesome. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm talking myself into this idea. I was, like, making fun of it at the beginning, and by the end, I was, like, kind of into it. Um, let's move into the meat of our episode. And this episode really has some serious meat. Yeah, it's a good, it. good word. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the armed first. Yes. Um, this is a band, uh, they have a record out today. It's called ultra pop. Mm. And, uh, if you're not familiar with them, this is a, uh, hardcore punk collective from Detroit. Uh, they formed in, uh, 2009 and maybe formed isn't quite the right word to describe what this band is. Uh, did when they came together because it's not a band in the traditional sense where you have a fixed lineup of people who are always working together. I mean, you really have different people coming in and out. I guess there's like a, a pretty consistent core at the center, but I mean, isn't the thing with this band is <laughs> the, the, the sort of like mysterious nature yeah. of, their, of their of their lineup? And even when I was interviewing them, um, I'll give a little plug for this interview I did uh, with apparently members of the armed uh 
in, for stereo gum about their uh, diet and workout regimen. But the thing is, like, people were immediately saying after the fact, oh, that's not actually Adam. That guy is Tony. Um, Clark Huge, we know who Clark Huge is. But um, the thing with the Armed is that they've always had a sense of mystery about, like, who's actually in the band. Or, like, there have been rumors that Tony Hawk is bankrolling them or that like Andrew WK is involved because of the Detroit connection and also the sound of the music or that Kurt Ballou who's in Converge and produces a lot of bands is actually a one-man band or it's a or it's an ad agency um which is something they they play up a lot like with the you know the fan base who's kind of in on the joke so um yeah it's just you know that stuff is super interesting and always um was in a way more interesting, not more interesting than music. The last album, Only Love, like it was compl- it was totally a sick record, but it also makes it a little difficult to like connect with it because I think particularly in, I don't know, 2021, to be someone who's in the discussion of like, you know, indie A-list, like it has to be someone who you can relate to, identify with, um, you know, follow along and... But I think with this album, Ultra Pop, um, they kind of embraced the idea. It's like, okay, we're going to do a, we're going to make our quote breakout album, but like also play into the idea that it is a breakout album, almost in like a, a, a tooth, like almost not a sellout sort of way, but it's like, okay, here's the, here's our pop album. We're going for this. You guys should take this seriously. And you know, yeah, it, it's like a comment. It's like a meta comment on like a crossover record. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, like, and and obviously you you see that in the album title. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been true in, in in some of their music videos. We should say too. You 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 talked about how you interviewed them about their workout regimen. <laughs> we should mention that this band is extremely jacked. Yeah, and I, I, <laughs> I think I made this joke in a previous episode that I think they're called the Armed because they have huge arms. Yeah, they're in this band like. They're the most muscular band. I was, I was, I was trying to think of like the last band yeah. that was this uh, muscular. The the best example I could come up with was this band, uh, Man of War, from <laughs> uh, the nineteen eighties. Are you familiar with them? They're like oh yeah, 80s, of like, course, think, man. Like Viking metal band. Yeah, of course. And like they're on their album covers, and they're all yeah, have huge pectorals and you know enormous arms. Um, they're the, really the only band I could compare the arm to in terms of like their physicality. Yeah. And it's always weird to like, I mean, it's always a bit awkward to talk about like a band's new look or whatever, because you get into some dicey territory, but like these guys are just straight up. Yeah. We went on, like we want to look like superheroes too, because like, that's just what this music is about. Like to you, I thought it sounds like American gladiators forming broken social scene. <laughs> Um, and also like you, like, and the video, the big thing about the first video for all futures was that like you saw what was ostensibly the actual lineup and they all look just way not, they look like the people you've seen in previous pictures, but they also just look like super ripped and they're doing like 4,500 to 5,000 calories a day. Like Clark Huge is a bodybuilder who also plays synths. Um, it's just like a fun band to talk about, which I think is also kind of new or just a breath of fresh air in the narrative of 2021. Um, Right. Yeah. I mean, there's something, um, you know, they definitely uh, skirt the line between making, I think, pretty interesting in progressive music and also just being totally ridiculous in how they present themselves. And, you know, you mentioned like that broken social scene example like sort of like a hardcore punk maybe version of that like when i listen to this record i get uh some like pretty hate machine era nine inch nails vibes yes to some of it there's a real sort of like industrial pop vibe to the songs Mm -hmm. along with the hardcore punk sound like it's a very furious sounding record yeah you know very blistering you know rapid pace but there's also like pop hooks like deeply embedded in the noise (laughs) which is uh you know something that can be pretty thrilling when the record comes together it also made me think of like the go team oh yeah if they did like crank (laughs) they did like crank for three days and then made a record yeah like so again all these things i think are to convey the sort of i think hysterical nature of this record it's like very hot it starts at 11 and it goes to like 31 by the end (laughs) it's very non-stop um and it and you brought this up like we we were talking about this record uh you know before the episode and and where this kind of fits in with music right now i mean you feel like this 
has the potential to be like the breakout record of this kind in 2021. I don't even know if like breakout it is the right word, but it seems like it's going to be the like I think in 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 these times you get like one record per year that like actually rips and is like elevated by consensus. Now it could also be I think in it, it reminds me a bit of like Daughters in 2018 that album you you won't get what you want which um was kind of in certain circles like really and like Daughters got super big after being this like Providence noise band that was just really underground for a while but you know I I think this is like the one heavy hard rock album that uh, that's going to get elevated because like there was a great, uh, you know, I thought I've thought about, you know, just kind of given the music I listened to. Um, there was a great um, medium post or a Substack post done by uh, Alex Rudenschold. He's um, someone in a band called Infant Island who plays, you know, Screamo, for lack of a better term. I love that band. And, you know, they wrote about just how in like they are someone who's super obsessed with like Metacritic and album of the year scores and pitchfork lists and such. And they they recognize that um, out of the entire, um, you know, out of all the albums released last year, like the only ones that the only heavy music that was really recognized was like Tool, Sunno and like Death Heaven. And like Death Heaven's pretty much been the only heavy rock band, with the exception of maybe like Blood Incantation, who have who are like not niche in a way. Like they are so, they are a band that can be uh, discussed as if they were I don't know like Japanese Breakfast or something along those lines. Um, and I don't know like I don't know if the arm gets there, but it makes me wonder. It's like is there like an audience for heavy music anymore? Because you would think like these are angry times. Like, where is the angry music to reflect that? And, you know, but I'm like yeah. up on this music. I'm wondering like what you might think as someone who's like more, I guess, I don't know, heavy music adjacent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoy this record a lot. Um, and I appreciate too the meta quality of it. The idea that this is a uh, record that's commenting on crossover albums from underground acts. And it's sort of that, although not really. Like, this is not, like, their Black Album. You know, this is not their Dookie. You know, there's uh, not, like, obvious pop hits that um, someone who doesn't like this kind of music is is going to like. Um, I still think that this is a pretty uncompromising record <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, my theory on this is that, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and even, like, early aughts, that there was this phenomenon of like legitimate crossover records, like yeah. where you'd have a punk band or a metal band that got really popular in their scene. And then they would decide at some point that they're going to make a record designed to get played on the radio and on MTV and to appeal to people who don't normally listen to, to punk or metal. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, like the avenues that existed that allowed bands to make that crossover went away. Mm -hmm. And there, and bands responded by basically making, Albums that would appeal to people who already like that kind of music. Yeah. So, like, if you're an emo band, you make emo records for emo fans. If you're a metal band, you make records for metal fans. And I think the way that manifests itself most obviously in a lot of these albums is in the production and, and in the vocal style. Mm -hmm. Like, if you listen to metal records now, you know, there's not a lot of, like, melodic singers mm -hmm. in, like, the most sort of critically acclaimed or, like, loved metal bands. It tends to be people who are screaming. A lot. And I think that's also true in emo. Like, yeah. the emo vocal style hmm. has, in some ways, become, like, even more exaggerated now. Like, if you listen to, like, younger bands, like, they're not trying to sound like Patrick Stump, for instance. Or, you know, like, the, the mainstream singers that you, uh, of bands, uh, you know, bands like Fall Out Boy. Or well, maybe like, they would romance. if they could, <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, so I just think that uh, there is this sort of, like, feeding the fans because that's what's available to you. And it's not really speaking any ill of those bands artistically. I think there's still like a lot of great bands there, but it just, I think, tends to isolate those groups more. Yeah. You know, sort of a self-perpetuating thing. So to me, that's why they don't maybe end up being in the consensus conversation when we talk about the best albums of the year, because most critics don't follow those genres very closely. And if you aren't enmeshed in the world it can be harder maybe to get those records, you know, to get them in terms of understanding them. 
and this is all stuff that um, Alex mentions in in um, this essay, which I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna post the link to this uh, Substack when it eventually goes live because I think everyone should read it to get a sense of like what it's like to be not just a band or listener in that realm, but to be in the business as well. And just talking about like how the doors feel more closed and like the fractionation, like you were saying, of uh, fan bases and so forth. And I mean, it, it's like, what can, you know, what, like there, there are plenty of, I would say niche type electronic albums or jazz albums that get, um, you know, elevated with similar fan bases. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, what it might take for like metal or something along those lines, but you know what it's, it, maybe it's just like the natural progression of things. And look, my experience with this record is just going to be listening into my headphones and working out, trying to look a little <laughs> bit more like Clark huge anyway. So maybe that's besides the point. <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting, and this does lead into our next topic here. Uh, yes, what I'm about to say is that if you look at the history of popular music of the last of like last fifty years or so, like one of the most popular and commercially successful genres of all time is like mainstream hard rock. You know, that covers mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Van Halen, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, uh, even like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, all those bands, and that genre virtually doesn't exist anymore outside of say maybe like i guess mm-hmm. avenged sevenfold and five finger death punch bands like that theory of I, a dead man <laughs> yeah which are certainly um you know they certainly have an audience but it it, it doesn't feel the same as those other bands that i mentioned you know yeah. who were so huge and like had a place in the middle of the conversation about popular mm-hmm. music that the modern popular hard rock bands don't. Yeah. And when there, when, it, when the days and confused of the 2020s or the 2010s comes out, like they're not going to be listening to like theory of a dead man or Greta Van Fleet, you know? Right. What, but it's interesting to me though, that like that there isn't more of an attempt to, uh, I guess, revive that just because it was so <laughs> huge for so long. Well, you got white I reaper. Guess, I mean, <laughs> and I guess the assumption is that it doesn't, that, that that audience isn't there anymore. But I mean, Greta Van Fleet, you know, transitioning into this part of our episode, I mean, they are one of the more prominent examples of that trying to be revived in some sort of way. And um, I guess we should, we should give like a little bit of background on this band. If <laughs> yeah. This is a band from uh, Detroit. They formed uh, in the early 2010s when they were very young. Uh, I think all the members are still in their early 20s at this point. Yeah. Um, they uh, became pretty popular over the course of a couple EPs uh, that they released in the late 2010s. Uh, and then they put out their uh, debut full-length album, Anthem of the Peaceful Army, in 2018. And this is a band that, certainly pre-pandemic, seemed like they were poised to become an arena band. Like, they were a band that could play multiple nights... Uh, in big cities playing like large theaters, basically, you know, two, three, four thousand seat theaters. Uh, and that was when they only had two EPs out, you know, so they had like a pretty big live audience already. Uh, one of their EPs from the fires, like won a Grammy uh, for best rock album in 2019. Uh, so they, they've definitely had some buzz behind them. I'm curious to see if they can continue that trajectory after touring comes back. Um, because it has been a while since they put out a record. Uh, they, they have a new album out today called The, the Battle at Garden's Gate. And uh, I reviewed this album for Uproxx. And I basically, and I, I joked about this in the lead of my piece, that I um, consider myself a defense attorney for Greta Van Fleet. Because <laughs> this is a band, and I, and I call them this in my piece, I think that they're the most critically reviled young rock band in America. Um, Absolutely. I read, I read an interview in The Guardian that uh that they did recently and, th- and this was like a nominally like positive piece and the writer <laughs> of that piece compared Greta Van Fleet to an ejaculating hyena uh and that was someone who like uh, okay how do they how do they know what that sounds like <laughs> well exactly that 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 does beg the question like how do you know what an ejaculating hyena sounds like uh, apparently the belief is that hyenas sound high pitched and that if they were to have an orgasm it would sound even more high pitched. I, I that that was my thinking when I when I read that piece. Um, Robert Plant would probably take that as a compliment, though, in like <laughs> 1970. 
Well, you know, he the, the lead singer, his name's Josh Kiska. I, I believe I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Yeah. I, I could be wrong. He gets compared to Robert Plant a lot because he has this very high, operatic, very dramatic-sounding voice. Uh, in my review, I likened him to Getty Lee yelling at his kids in the backseat of a car <laughs> while on a road trip. Like, because Getty Lee's Sounds voice is tight. even higher than Robert Plant. And, like, yeah. in the Gerda Van Fleet guy, he pushes the hysteria of that voice to an even greater degree. Um, I don't know how you feel about this band. Personally, you know, <laughs> look, they are a dumb band. They're, They're preposterous. Uh, they do a lot of silly things. They have terrible taste in many ways. Mm. But I also feel like there are a few bands that I enjoy writing about more than this band. Yeah. Uh, their ridiculousness to me is endearing, especially uh. since, you know, it's not as if these guys are like a toxic band you know they're not yeah. like a sexist band they're, they never sing about sex at all it's always about, yeah which like, is really the weirdest part about it because like yeah how do you like want to be led i think that's where the getty lee comparison makes a lot more sense because it's like you listen to led zeppelin and it's like yeah let's just drop all the songs about like sex you know and just yeah there's the no ones about songs. like lord of the rings you know yeah exactly all the songs are about being on the road or being in a desert and like <laughs> fighting the devil to death, you know, like it's songs like it's like all these epic journeys. And like this new record, I mean, my criticism of it, among other things, is that, you know, every song tries to be this enormous rock epic. Like there's no sense of dynamics on this record. Like I wish someone would play them the second side of Led Zeppelin 3 so they yeah. could maybe play some like acoustic songs just to break up this, this like nonstop epic, you know ginormousness of this record <laughs> um but you know the thing with this band i just find them i find their earnestness endearing you know yeah even though there's not a lot of in- intelligence in this band <laughs> uh, the the silliness of it um is like it's just entertaining to me and also the fact too that um the fact that this band exists in 2021 i think is so bizarre you know because yeah. they do not fit in anywhere and there's yeah. something almost courageous about the mm. fact that, like, when you listen to the second record, um, they do everything that people made fun of of them for on their first album, and they just double down on everything. You know, there's mm. no attempt to sound modern on this record. There's no attempt to be. Greg Kirsten produced this, so well, I well, think... he 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 co-wrote a couple of songs on the record. Oh, they, yeah. th- those songs are pretty bombastic. Like they're not okay. like. They don't sound like the Shins or like the Foo Fighters on those songs. Okay. Uh, they're like a little more pop friendly, but they're still probably six or seven minutes long. This is, one of the Greg Kirsten songs is called Light My Love. Ooh. And I said that it, it sounds like Axl Rose singing a Celine Dion power ballad on the Titanic after it's been lit on fire by dragons. Like that's Ooh. how I would describe that song. It's very epic sounding. Um and again, like like if you were clowning on this band after their first record, you're not going to change your mind with yeah. this record. There's no concessions to the criticisms uh, on this record, which I kind of respect. I mean, you and I have talked a lot about Muse on this show, and I think yes, we have. Greta Van Fleet to me slots in like the same lane of just over the top, ridiculous, bombastic rock bands that are mm. totally out of fashion, and for that reason, are kind of lovable to me. Yeah, and I th- I think with Muse, like Muse. I, I would say even from the jump, they've had somewhat of a self-awareness or a sense of humor about what they do. Like Greta Van Fleet, um, the thing about like this style of music is that uh, for people to kind of accept it, it needs to be like sort of the darkness where it's like clearly like a piss take on the genre. But also like the darkness were pretty genius songwriters, at least that first album. But with Greta Van Fleet, it's like they really do think that mu- they they think like hippies, which is makes it a lot easier to clown them. They really, I think when I listen to their records, I feel that they've um, absorbed this idea that like the Robert Plant, like who, I'm going to get the line wrong. Like whatever happened to laughter? Like what's the line? Steve, you got to help me out on this one. Does anyone remember laughter? That's it. That's the one. And yeah, it's like, it's like Led Zeppelin, but like not over the top enough like, which puts them in this very precarious space, which makes them extremely easy to clown. And I think that we'd be remiss to not mention that Greta Van Fleet is the recipient of the single most famous, I guess, for lack of a better term, 
a pan of the past decade, which they got like, I, I can't remember another album that got like a sub two score on Pitchfork, but Greta Van Fleet did. And, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of an event, but like not the way some pans are where you get like, I don't know, the Stan army coming for the writer, like Greta Van Fleet, like you were saying, like their fan base is like kind of harmless in a way, you know, like it, it's like you can, they thread the needle of a band that you can pan and like not feel like, okay, I'm going to have to go on private anymore because it's it, you know like what what are Greta Van Fleet fans going to do that like will make you look bad it's like in a similar way like if you like criticize a tool record their fans are just going to like come at you in a way that makes them look like the ridiculous one and not you so i mean it and it, and with seeing that like don't get me wrong i thought the first record like was i would never voluntarily listen to it but i also wonder um if they could perhaps like, I, I always listen to, like, harder rock music and think, you know what? Everyone wants to be Nirvana. Everyone wants to be the Breeders. Everyone wants to be, like, Hole. Who's going to be, like, Bush or Stone Temple Pilots? Like, who are going to be that band that just embraces their corporate rockness and, like, just puts together a greatest hits or, in the alternative, reveals themselves as a band capable of making their tiny music? I mean, can Greta Van Fleet make a tiny music? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't think that their first two records are nearly as good as like the Stone Temple Pilots. Oh, hell no. Records. No, don't. And um, I just want to be very clear about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and also I feel like we should shout out friend of the podcast, Jeremy Larson, who wrote the Pitchfork yeah. review of uh, Anthem of the Peaceful Army and did a great job. His review is really funny and, and yeah. insightful. And I can't really disagree with a lot of things he said in that review. Nah. Especially if you're going to write like an institutional voice, if 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 you're going to write from like the perspective of of, of Pitchfork ruling on this record, you know all the things that he wrote in there. I, I think you have to make those observations. I think for me, you know, I have the luxury of not writing from an institutional voice. I write from a voice that is very much based on my own biases and in soft spots. And I think in acknowledging all the weaknesses of this band. I still find them more likable than like yeah. a lot of bands out there Same. <laughs> because of their silliness. And again, I feel like what they're doing, it's so out of fashion. Yeah. Uh, and, and by now they know that they're going to get roasted and they're still not making any concessions to that. I, I have a weird respect for them yeah. sticking to their guns. I, I mean, I think it's generally true that if you're a band who's reviled at the beginning of your career and you can just stay the course and mm -hmm. be yourself long enough, someone's going to come around and appreciate what you do. I mean, even a Absolutely. band like Kiss, for instance, people sing the praises of Kiss at this point because they just yeah. did what they did, and they were dumb, and they wrote big, dumb rock songs, and they weren't swayed by the criticism that they received. And if you just stay the course <laughs> and, you, and you be yourself... yeah. People will come around and they'll give you at least grudging respect. So, you know, I think the arc of history trends towards things that were popular. So, right, yeah, exactly. I so, I'm, I'm curious to see like how this translates if uh, they continue on their trajectory of being popular or if maybe the success of that first record and the early EPs was this blip that will go away. Yeah. Um, I don't have a sense of that yet. Really. No. It's hard to know because no one's touring. I think. And I think that's such a big part of their story, like their draw as a live band. Um, but, um, you know, this record, like I said, they're not backing down. You know, they might yeah. be trying to get an even worse Pitchfork score with this album. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I look at it as like a dare. It's like, yeah, we, we're, we're daring you now to give us bad reviews at this point. So, you know, hat tip to Greta Van Fleet. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about a record that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so I'm going to go off a little bit from my usual beat and bring up a record from uh, this artist called CFCF. Uh, it's a Montreal producer named Mike Silver. They've been around for you know a decade or so, always in the periphery of electronic music. Like I've loved, I've loved a couple of the remixes they've done. 
um, and the albums are interesting. And the one they put out most recently uh, is called Memory Land, and this is an this is a concept record that overtly calls back to uh, a period in the late '90s, like kind of electronica, but even like post electronica, where it started to kind of feed into the rock music a bit. And um, if you if the words uncle science fiction means anything to you, I oh, think yes. you'll be yeah, I think you'll be interested in this album. Um, That's like an IndyCast Hall of Fame record. Possibly. Oh, absolutely. And th- another interesting thing is that uh, the artist Mike Silver he he brought up that like back when he was listening to this music, like he made a uh, Winamp skins as art for this music. If you go on his Twitter page, like you can see what he did. Um, but you know, it, and it, it's seventy minutes long. There's one song with the band No Joy that sounds like Aphex Twins' "Window Liquor." There's some Square Pusher, but it's also this electron. Electronica nowadays gets kind of a bad rap because, you know, it's seen for what it is, which is like a lot of, you know, white sort of rockish bands uh, taking sounds that were developed in Detroit, New York, uh, Chicago, and presenting it to suburban kids such as myself. And yeah, you know, when you get to the next level of electronic music, you discover the roots of it. But like this was these were still very important gateway bands. And uh, CFCF recognizes that and just kind of pays tribute to this kind of kitschy style of music. And one of the most interesting things about it is that it got a 7.0 at Pitchfork. And uh, CFCF was like super thankful for that because they said, I wanted to make a kind of bloated CD era erratic album that just had way too much material. Um, and so it's really cool to kind of see that as the goal. But if, I mean, if the idea of, you know, window liquor gone shoegaze is interesting to you, then this one is worth checking out. It's really an album worth kind of sifting and streaming through. I like it. Another like meta album in this episode. Very cool sounding. I want to talk about a band called Silver Synthetic. Uh, this is a band from New Orleans. You know, as, as regular listeners of this podcast know, I am duty bound to report the latest in like good chugal music and uh, oh, this yeah. is this is the chugal record of uh april right now uh, it's a self-titled debut like i said this is a band from new orleans uh the members include uh people who were in jeff the brotherhood as well as this garage punk band called the bottom feeders and uh i'm not going to go long on this record because i feel like if i say chugal <laughs> people know whether they are into it or not i, I know yeah. that there's a portion of our listeners who are immediately on board, and there's another portion who probably turned off this episode as soon as I said Chugal. Uh, all I'll say is that the first song on this record sounds like a country rock version of Sweet Jane by the Velvet Underground. Uh, yeah. So if I say that, you know if you are into it, uh, and you also know if you're not into it. So I guess that would be my review of this record. If you like the <laughs> idea of songs that sound like Loaded Era Velvet Underground with like really cool guitar solos, um, and you basically just like want to hang out in your backyard this weekend and have like a cookout and, and maybe have a beer or two, Put this record on. It's going to be perfect. A perfect soundtrack for an early spring afternoon. Uh, again, that's Silver Synthetic by the band Silver Synthetic. Um, I think that wraps up. Chugle, <laughs> baby. Yeah. I think that wraps up this week. Uh, this week's IndieCast. Thank you again for listening. Uh, we'll have more reviews, news, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.